Bibles and turn to Hebrews. Hebrews chapter 10, and our text will be verses 11 through 14. Hebrews 10, 11 through 14. The human dilemma is that we know we are sinful people. God has written His law upon our heart. It testifies against our conscience that we know that we have broken God's law. We have not followed God fully as we should have. And this sobering reality is constantly with us. It testifies against us. It convicts us of the reality that we fall short of God's glory. And because of that, every human being recognizes that there is an inherent guilt before a holy God, whether they recognize the one true living God or not. They recognize that there is a guilt that remains upon them because God has written that knowledge in the human heart. Many people, all people, wrestle really with the question of Jeremiah in Jeremiah 11.15, he asked the question, Can even sacrificial flesh avert your doom? Wrestling with the knowledge that we are guilty before God. And so as a result of that knowledge, people throughout all of human history have done things to be right with God. To try to assuage their guilt somehow before a holy God. But yet it never goes away. The guilt just remains. And we know that we're guilty. This is what keeps people up at night. This is what makes people fear death. This is what makes people oftentimes rationalize at the end of their life. Well, I hope I've done enough. I hope I've been good enough. And it's been particularly distressing that I've even heard Christians say those words as they come towards the end of their life. I hope that I have done enough. But yet we know that we could never do enough. We know that our guilt would remain. And this is what we see this morning painted for us in a wonderful picture of what's offered in the gospel, what's revealed in the new covenant, is the fact that Christ actually removes our sin and thus removes our guilt. That he takes it all away from us. And that's the wonderful truth that solves our greatest problem and the greatest dilemma that we have that never leaves us is the fact that we are sinful people. And so let us hear the word of God and we see how Christ removes our guilt. We read in verse 11, And every priest stands daily at his service, offering repeatedly the same sacrifices which can never take away sins. But when Christ had offered for all time a single sacrifice for sins, he sat down at the right hand of God, waiting from that time until his enemies should be made a footstool for his feet. For by a single offering, he has perfected for all time 
those who are being sanctified. This is God's word. We see three things primarily in this. First, that Christ provides expiation. And the second thing we see is Christ begins his reign. And the third thing is we see that Christ makes perfect the imperfect. But we begin with this, that Christ provides expiation. Now, if you're wondering what does expiation mean, it simply means this is a removal of sins. That's the theological word expiation. Sometimes you will find the the word propitiation in the scriptures, and sometimes that word propitiation is, is, is actually translated as expiation. And so as we try to understand and grapple with what this word expiation means, which is a word that's in our Bibles, we shouldn't fear theological words, we see it painted for us and shown to us first by describing the bad news and then moving to the good news. And so the bad news is this, you can't provide expiation for your sins. That's the bad news. The good news, though, is contrasted with that, is that Christ has provided expiation. So the bad news is you can't remove your sins. There's nothing you can do. The good news is Christ has done it. Now notice how this is put forth here by a way of contrast of Christ's work versus that of the high priest or the priestly order. It begins in verse 11 by stating what we could say is the bad news. So that way the good news is highlighted. Verse 11, And every priest stands daily at his service, offering repeatedly the same sacrifices which can never take away sins. And so you notice a couple of things, a couple of words that should stand out. The first is that the priest stands, and then he does this daily, and he's offering repeatedly. Then you notice the words, the same sacrifices, and the end result of this continual ongoing work of the priest is that his work never, ever removes sins. It can't take them away There's nothing that you can do or I can do or any other person can do for expiation. That's the whole point of verse 11. It's showing us the insufficiency of the sacrificial system. It's showing us the insufficiency of man to accomplish forgiveness of sins. The author of Hebrews has pointed out several things about the priesthood. The first thing he pointed out about them is this, is that they kept dying. In chapter 7, verse 23, he makes a very obvious point that is uh, observable to all all people is, well, the priests just keep dying, and so once they die, then there has to be a new priest that comes in board. They, They can't actually accomplish something. We see that they were appointed by law and genealogy. That was the qualification that they were of the line of Aaron. And what that just simply means is that every now and then you have a bad apple that's produced in the priesthood. You might have one generation a good priest and then not so much. 
And then you also see in chapter 9, verse 7, is that they had to offer sacrifices for themselves. And that, that just means that they themselves were sinners. They themselves could not provide any form of lasting atonement. They could not bring about expiation because they themselves were sinful human beings in need of expiation. Their guilt remained. And so you see these arguments being made about the priesthood, and all the while this is compared and contrasted to Christ, Christ who did not have to offer a sacrifice, and of the psalmist who wrote, of no sacrifices do you desire, but you have prepared for me a body, and that is to be interpreted as Christ didn't present a sacrifice for himself, but a body prepared so that he could present himself as a sacrifice. Now the first thing that you see in verse 11 is that every priest stands, and I want to focus on that word stands for a second, and it's qualified as every priest stands. So every priest that has ever entered into the priesthood stands that is that they're doing their duty, and you might think, what's the big deal? They're standing to do their duty. Well, Deuteronomy actually describes the standing, and I think it would be good for us to hear what God's Word says about their standing. In Deuteronomy 10, in verse 8, it says, At that time the Lord set apart the tribe of Levi to carry the ark of the covenant of the Lord to Stand before the Lord to minister to him and to bless his name to this day. So the whole purpose of the author telling us that every priest, without exception, everyone that enters into the priesthood is standing, means this, is they're never able to rest, they're never able to take time off, because their work is never accomplished. That's the whole entire point about emphasizing the standing because they're standing because they have work to do and their work is never completed. What was their specific work? Their work was to offer sacrifices on behalf of the people that would remove their guilt, that would remove their sin, but the fact that they stand every single day and every single priest without exception means this, they're job was never complete, but was always incomplete. That's contrasted with Christ that we'll see who sat after his sacrifice. It says they repeated the same sacrifices daily. In Exodus, in chapter 29, it, it uses this very language and, and describes this for us. And it's important, again, just to hear the language of God's word on this. In Exodus 29, 38, it says, Now this is what you shall offer on the altar, two lambs a day old, day by day, regularly. One lamb you shall offer in the morning, and the other lamb you shall offer at twilight. They repeated the same offerings every day because it communicates the same thing that their standing communicates, is that there was never an expiation of sins. 
They had to repeat the same sacrifices over and over and over again because they didn't actually complete something. So it it demonstrates the futility of it. It means this is that they could never move on because forgiveness has been accomplished and sins have been removed. And so when they have to offer them day and night, day by day, it shows us this. In that priesthood, forgiveness was never final and never forever. Remembrance of sin is continually there. Specifically, It does not provide expiation. The words, if what is, just so we are really clear, what what does expiation mean? It means this, found in verse 11, can never take away sins. Expiation is the removal of sins, to take sins away. And what we are told in the sacrificial system is that they could never take away sins, which means this, in the sacrificial system, our guilt for sins always remains. Now, if you have been reading through your Bible, and if you have read through the first five books of the Bible, the five books of Moses, the Pentateuch, usually when people get to around Leviticus or Numbers, that's oftentimes when a tap-out takes place because it becomes very difficult reading. Let me encourage you to go and back and read through those five books of Moses because we see so much rich biblical truth that points us to Christ. And if you have read there, you might say, well, hold on. God says these things do take away sins. Let me give you an example on the Day of Atonement, which is in Leviticus 16, which most of Hebrews is looking back on Leviticus 16 And we read this in Leviticus chapter 16, verse 30. For on this day shall atonement be made for you to cleanse you. You shall be clean before the Lord from all your sins. It is a Sabbath of Solomon rest for you. And you shall afflict yourself. So it is a statute forever. So by practicing this, we're told God provides atonement which means a covering, that they would be okay with one another, and that also through this that God would bring about cleansing, and that is to be purified. And so then when you come to the book of Hebrews, it gets to be confusing. Is Hebrews contradicting what God had previously said? And here's what we must understand, is that we must understand Scripture in light of the whole revelation of God. We must understand one portion of Scripture, or one verse, not in isolation and taken by itself, but we must understand it in the complete, full canon of Scripture, in the totality of what Scripture teaches us. And so, we must understand what it says in Leviticus chapter 16 and other places where we are told the sacrifice has brought about atonement. 
When we read what the Scriptures in the New Testament teach us, we, we, we learn that the sacrifices themselves didn't actually bring atonement. So how was atonement accomplished? It's this way, insofar as the sacrifices were a type of the ultimate sacrifice that God would provide, the sacrifice that would come, and through faith in what God would provide, sin was removed, atonement took place, cleansing took place. In other words, how were those saints in the Old Testament made right with God? The same way you and I are made right with God, by God's grace through faith in Jesus Christ. The animals that were used in sacrifices, the ceremonies that were part of the sacrifice, they had no intrinsic value within themselves that could remove sin. And that's what we must connect. Is that they were looking forward, those saints of the Old Testament were seeing in those sacrifices what they were doing through faith that one day God would provide real atonement in Christ and thus they were cleansed and thus they were purified. But what Hebrews teaches us is that the blood of bulls and goats could actually never take away sins. The sacrifices in verse 11 says they never take away sins. In other words, there are no human means by which we will experience forgiveness and expiation. So you might wonder, well, was it a waste for them? Was it in vain for them to worship accordingly to how God had told them? No, it was not a waste. God's word is always good. Continual sacrifices, though insufficient in themselves to remove sin, were sufficient as being a type of Christ and as being a schoolmaster leading the people to a perfect sacrifice in Christ and to trust in God's means of salvation. There's an important point for us to think about this as we look back on them following God's word and we say, well, it it seems to say that that following it didn't actually do anything. That would be a false assumption. It did do something. God had commanded them to do these things, and so thus, because God commanded them, they were holy. It was positive law, and positive law is a law that God institutes for a period of time and may remove it at another time. In the New Testament, we have positive law. What is that positive law we have in the New Testament? Well, we're going to participate in the Lord's Supper. We're going to, we we participate in having baptism. Those are positive law that God institutes for His church for a time, but we won't be doing baptism in eternity. But we will forever worship the Lord our God and not worship other gods. We will forever not steal. We will forever honor our mother and father in eternity. 
Those are transcendent truths. But there's something here we should note is that as we look at them worshiping according to God's plan, that was good. Looking to the, to the worship itself, looking to those things as a mean of salvation was bad. So it was not in vain that the Old Testament saints followed God's word. It was in vain for those that saw the sacrifices as the final goal of God's redemptive plan. But God always commands, prescribes, and regulates how He is to be worshipped. How it looked in the Old Testament is different than how it looks in the New Testament. If we ever wonder this for a second, just let me draw this to us a little bit here. If we ever wonder why do we gather and hear God's Word read Why do we then sing the same songs? Then why does someone sit there and explain a book that's thousands of years old to us? Why do we do the Lord's Supper? Why do we pray? Why do we read the Scripture? Why do we have Christian fellowship? Because God has told us to. And these are a means of grace in our life. And the ceremonial law in the Old Testament would have been a means of grace for those saints as well. Let us never, ever neglect God's means of grace for our lives. For when we do... When we do, not only have we entered into disobedience... But we say that what God tells us is good for us, we say there's probably better things for us. Let us never view the worship of God as being something that is in vain. But it was, as we see in the Old Testament, the blood of bulls and goats could not take away sins. The priest and their daily work never could take away sins. So that's the bad news. There's nothing you can do for expiation. But, verse 12, it begins with the word but, which is a contrast. There's now going to be a contrast between the work of the priest and the work of Christ. But when Christ had offered for all time a single sacrifice for sins, he sat down at the right hand of God. So again, a contrast is introduced with the word but. We're to think of what they did and look what Christ did. It says Christ offered... It's not a daily offering. It's not a repeated offering. It's not the same thing over and over again, but offered, which is speaking of a complete event, which means it's accomplished, it's finished, its fullness is realized to say that he offered for all time a single Offering he offered that there is not going to be multiple ones, which means this is the benefits of what Christ offered in his body never cease. 
The benefits of Christ's one-time-for-all sacrifice never cease. The benefits never end, but will sustain us for all of eternity. They continue perpetually. What Christ offered one time is accomplished. And now what, it was, what was it for? It was for sins. Notice what it says, for sins. It was for the purpose of expiation. It was for the purpose of the actual removal of sins. When we think about the work of Christ... What we, ha- we, we oftentimes, and rightly so, focus in on Christ's imputed righteousness to the believer. And that is to say that Christ gives us His righteousness. And we rightly focus on that. The righteousness by which no one shall see the Lord. The holiness by which no one shall see the Lord. Christ gives us that. But what Scripture also teaches us this, is that there is this actual removal of sins, which is this, is it's an, uh, the objective guilt under the law is removed, and we want to think of this forensically in the sense that God, in a legal sense, removes all of our sins, Colossians tells us that they have been nailed to the cross and the debt is removed. So sin is removed. So we have Christ's righteousness and sin removed, which means we are no longer then guilty under the law. We are considered then, if you think about that and the implications of that, we are considered in God's sight, as without sin. That is how God views us because of what Christ did. Christ offered for sins. And the contrast is, the priest could never remove sins. The sacrifices could never remove sins. But Christ has removed sins. Dr. Joel Beakey says this, quote, Though our sins remain a cause of shame and grief in our souls, even after we are forgiven, all our legal liability to rejection and punishment is removed. The reason I quote Beaky there is because it brings up this point is that we know that we're sinners. We struggle with sin. We wrestle with sin. First Peter describes the battle of the flesh and the spirit as a civil war taking place within every single believer. We know that we're sinful. We know that we have sinned. But then we read passages like this, that Christ has offered for all time a single sacrifice for sins, meaning that our sins have been removed, but yet we look in the mirror, we look in our hearts, we think in our mind, but I'm still a sinner. But the beautiful truth is is this, is in God's sight you have been declared without sin. Because your sin has been nailed to the cross. And in the cross, 
the debt for your sin has been canceled. Should this change how we view our lives? And the fact that we are declared now without guilt and the removal of sins has taken place, should this not affect and impact how we live our lives before a holy God in gratitude and in thanks? And is that not enough of a motivation for us to strive for that holiness without which no one will see the Lord? Knowing that in the sight of God, my sins have been removed? How does that help us with guilt and shame that we often have for past sins? If you ever struggle with guilt, if you ever struggle with shame and you think, boy, I, 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 just, I, I really blew it so many times in the past, and you struggle with that, just remember that word expiation. Because it's the glorious truth that Christ has taken your guilt. Christ has taken your shame because Christ has taken your sin and removed it. And now before God, you are considered without sin. That's the glorious truth of the gospel. That is what Christ has provided that we cannot provide for ourselves. That is what Christ has provided which no one and provide. And after Christ sat down, or after Christ offered this, we are told that he sat down, which indicates the second point. This is Christ begins his reign as king. When did, when did Christ begin his kingship? Well, notice what verse 12 says. After he had offered a single sacrifice, he sat down at the right hand of God. In chapter 1, it introduces Christ in this way, in the exact same phraseology, after making purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. And this is a, from Psalm 110, verse 1. And the author of Hebrews mentioned this, mentions this several times. Christ isn't standing to do work still as if his work's incomplete, but rather he sat down because he has accomplished something. Now there's a couple of things we have to note that this means when it says that he sat down at the right hand of God. First, this is a recognition of his deity, that he, Christ, is God. And so when we think about what Christ offered, why was there an eternal value in the life of Christ and the body prepared for Him in offering Himself? Why was there an eternal value which enabled Him to sit down? Because He is eternal. He is everlasting. He is the God of the universe through whom all things were made and without Him nothing was made that has been made. He is the one in whom all things hold together, to whom all things are moving and in subjection. He sat down as the righteous King, the Son of David, the promised seed of the woman, and he accomplished all that the Father gave him as eternal God, as man. 
And his sitting is not just a recognition of his reign, but of his accomplishment of God's plan. It's a recognition of his deity. It's a recognition of his deity and that he accomplished all these things. But his sitting was also his coronation, in which he assumes the rightful throne. In fact, in John chapter 17, verse 4, this is recognized by Christ when he says, I glorified you on earth, having accomplished the work that you gave me to do. He could sit because of, his, because of accomplishing all that God had given him to do, and he reigns as king, is what the sitting means. When does Christ become king? Christ is king. When does Christ reign? Christ reigns now. Christ is sovereign Lord over all right now. And this is why repeatedly Hebrews tells us he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. But what specifically is accomplished in this sitting down Beyond the fact that we have now expiation, beyond that our guilt has been removed, there's some very practical things that we ought to recognize in the sitting down, in His coronation. And the first is this, Christ's rule has conquered Satan. Christ's rule, Christ sitting down, has conquered Satan. His death has neutralized the devil. In fact, Hebrews chapter 2 and verse 14 and 15 were told this, Since therefore the children share in flesh and blood, he himself likewise partook of the same things, that through death he might destroy the one who has the power of death. That is the devil. And deliver all those who through fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery. He has neutralized the devil. Through his death, his accomplishment, and his reign, he has, he, he, he has neutralized what Satan can do. Specifically, Satan can no longer accuse the Christian. In Revelation chapter 12 and verses 10 and 11, we read this, And I heard a loud voice in heaven saying, Now the salvation and the power and the kingdom of our God and the authority of His Christ have come. The accuser, the accuser, for the accuser of our brothers, this is that Satan's work of accusing the brothers, accusing the brothers and the sisters, accusing the church, Listen to what it says, has been thrown down. Who accuses them day and night before God. And they have conquered him by the blood of the Lamb and by the word of their testimony, for they love not their lives even unto death. Satan can no longer accuse the Christian. You might say, wait, hold on. First Peter says that he, the devil prowls like a roaring lion seeking someone to true. That's absolutely true. In Ephesians, in chapter 4, in verse 27, we see these, this warning, and give no opportunity to the devil. 
In chapter 6 and verse 11 of Ephesians, we're told, put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. So how do we compare those two things that Christ neutralized Satan, but that yet we're, we're still warned of him? Satan is not sovereign. Satan cannot take away your salvation. Satan cannot thwart the plan of God. That doesn't mean he's not powerful. That doesn't mean he doesn't roar like a, or prowl like a lion. It just simply means as you look at these other passages, you're not under his domain when you are in Christ. But if you're not in Christ, you're under his domain and he's your father. And that's what we have to also understand. Under Christ, he is conquered and he is not sovereign. Now notice what Hebrews goes on to tell us about Christ as he sits at the right hand of majesty. He sat down at the right hand of God, verse 13, waiting from that time until his enemies should be made a footstool for his feet. And so the picture is Christ is sitting, waiting for the completion of the ages. And we should understand this waiting is not like how we anxiously wait for things, nor should we, we look at it as if Christ is, is doing nothing. Remember, Scripture tells us Christ holds all things together. Christ is not inactive. The text actually tells us until his enemy should be made a footstool. And what's interesting about that is his enemies are described in the passive tense, and Christ, or God the Father, is in the active sense, in that the Father is making the enemies of Christ his footstool, which speaks of them being conquered. It is a display of God's sovereignty over all things that the enemies of Christ will be made his footstool. You think of what Psalm 8 verse 6 says, which is a messianic psalm, you have given him dominion over the works of your hands. You have put all things under his feet. So as Christ is waiting for the completion of the ages to take place, how do we understand Christ's active reign even now? And what should our response be to this? As Christ is waiting, the first thing that we have to recognize about Christ in heaven, waiting for the completion of the age, is this. He is pouring His Spirit out upon the church. In John chapter 15, verse 26, it says, But when the Helper comes, whom I will send to you from the Father, the Spirit of truth who proceeds from the Father, he will bear witness about me. So Jesus says, I will send the Spirit who proceeds from the Father upon you. And as you get to action, and Christ is giving his final instructions 
to his disciples in Acts chapter 1 and verse 8. Jesus says, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the church, into the ends of uh, the earth. What, what Jesus said would, would happen in John chapter 15, verse 26, he then says he is going to send the Holy Spirit for the growth of the church. And when you read the book of Acts, it's oftentimes the Acts of the Holy Spirit or the Acts of the Apostles. The, the book of Acts, in my opinion, should be called the Acts of the Risen Savior Jesus Equipping His Church. Because what you see throughout the book of Acts is, the, is Jesus sending His Spirit upon the church to grow the church, to gift the church, and to protect the church. That Christ is not just sitting in heaven helplessly waiting for the plan of God to unfold, but He is actively, at this moment, sending out His Spirit to grow the church. But not only that, is that Christ is also sovereign over all things right now. In Hebrews chapter 2, verse 8, it says, Now in putting everything in subjection to Him, He left nothing outside His control. At present, we do not see everything in subjection to Him. Meaning, we, see still, we still see rebellion. And we'll continue to see rebellion until Christ fully comes back and returns and consummates His kingdom. But what does the text of Scripture say? He's still ruling over all things. And because we don't see things always in obedience to Christ, but rather in rebellion against Christ, we shouldn't assume that means God's not in control, that Christ isn't reigning. What we should say is that that's part of God's plan unfolding as Christ is waiting for the end of ages. Christ has a general rule as king over all that exists, but then there's also a special rule that Christ has over all that exists in His kingship and how we should understand that. Very simply, it's this, is Christ is the head of the church. Christ rules over the heart of His people. And Christ is king over the heart of His people. And if you are in Christ, He is ruling over you. And we see that the final phase of God's redemptive plan, we see it elsewhere in Scripture in 1 Corinthians chapter 15 and verse 25, for he must reign until he has put all enemies under his feet. Who are his enemies? Those that opposed Christ and those that oppose his people, those that oppose the church. Those are the enemies of Christ. So how we understand Christ waiting is not passively and inactive, but actually of His sovereignly ruling over His people. But what about us? What's our waiting look like? Because we're waiting for Christ. Well, it's described this way. In Hebrews 9.28, So Christ, having been offered once to bear the sins of many, will appear a second time, not to deal with sin, but to save those who are eagerly waiting for Him. And that's a text we've looked at. So we see Christ is waiting, but we see the Christian is waiting. And how does the Christian wait? Eagerly, longing for the return 
of Christ, praying for the return of Christ, anticipating the return of Christ, taking great hope and joy in the return of Christ, knowing that it will come. And though people mock now, saying, where is this speak of this coming? We know that before God, a thousand years is like a day in His sight. And we also have this wonderful truth of how this applies to us as we actually participate in it. Romans chapter 16 verse 20 says, The God of peace will soon crush Satan under your feet. The enemies that will become the footstool of Christ, Paul says they are also crushed under the feet of the church. Paul concludes that by saying, The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you. Let me ask you, do you long for that day of Christ to return? I want us to apply it in this way. When we doubt this or become consumed with worry about the times, when we get distraught and depressed because we see the state that the world is in now, let me just ask you a couple of questions that you ask yourself. Is, ask yourself this question. Does Christ pour out his gifts to the church for and according to his purposes? Absolutely. Did Christ send out his disciples for the proclamation of the gospel over which Satan is powerless to bind the nations? And does Christ still continue to send out his disciples to the nations to proclaim the truth of the gospel? Does Christ not say that he will build and that he will protect his church and that the gates of hell shall not prevail over it? Does Christ not say that? Does not Christ promise to be present and walk amongst his churches and to be with his people? Does Christ not say that all authority and power have been given over to me? Let me ask you another question. Does not 2,000 years of church history provide us with confirmation that despite the persecution by the Caesars, by the Genghis Kongs of the world, by the Mao Zedongs, by the Hitlers, by Islamic terrorists, doesn't that teach us something that despite the fury of hell being thrown at Christians, the church still remains unabated and undeterred, growing in the most volatile places in all the world. That the church remains through death, through persecution. The church remains and continues to grow, and the church continues to be provided for, that the church continues to be blessed by Christ. 
Our, our enemies should not make us fear, but rather drive us to Christ and to put on the full armor of God and stand confidently in Him that the gates of hell shall never prevail because Christ sat down at the majesty on high. So there's two simultaneous truths. Evil persists, but Christ reigns. And our waiting for Him is eagerly waiting for Him to come. Let's close in prayer and pick up on verse 14 next week. Gracious Heavenly Father, we thank you for the Lord Jesus Christ, that he is sovereign over all that exists. That in Christ, sacrifices, in Christ, atonement, there is a complete forgiveness and removal of sins. Father, may we take great joy and comfort in the truth of your word that Christ is King and his sacrifice once for all accomplished a removal of sins. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.